Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with Gianluca Mauro and had a conversation about the biggest revolution in the history of mankind, artificial intelligence. Gianluca is an expert in the field. He's the founder of AI Academy, author of Zero to AI, and producer of Tech.Pizza, a weekly tech newsletter. His mission is to empower people to build the future with artificial intelligence and have more impactful, inspiring, and fulfilling careers. He has taught AI to thousands of people from Harvard classes to corporate boardrooms and high schools. Our conversation revolved around the exciting and potentially frightening future of this unbound technology and how we all need to know and learn more and get involved as it will affect every aspect of our lives. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you for joining us. Gianluca, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you here with us on the Brain Health Revolution podcast. We've been looking forward to this episode, and I'm so happy that we finally are connected. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is going to be a little different because our son Alex is joining us today. And Alex is, uh, well, I'll let him actually explain why he's into artificial intelligence and why he's so interested. But, you know, the three of us wanted to speak with you and learn more. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm extremely interested in artificial intelligence just because of its wide variety of applications and how powerful of a tool it is, um, especially in uh, the application of healthcare. I'm really interested in that subfield. So ever since I was young, I've been learning about the field, trying to educate myself on it, the technical details, but also how to use it. Um, so yeah, when I, when I heard you were coming on the podcast, I, I had to join because it's probably the best opportunity to learn about AI that I've had um, in a long time. It's way better than just surfing the internet and reading articles. Awesome. Now I feel the responsibility for trying to give you some good information. <laughs> I know, this is wonderful. Um, we're both neurologists and neuroscientists, and in many ways, we think this is very close to what we're doing. In fact, the two of us are actually delving, in, delving into the technology realm at the interface of brain and brain health and um, brain optimization and AI. We don't want to, there are a lot of people that are making big extrapolations. We are very calm with our, with our statements usually. We try to be circumspect, but, but this is an incredibly exciting time. I'm making, I'm usually one who's very um, uh, um, sedate with my uh, projections. I, I, I don't uh, make big statements. I want to make sure that it's close to the science. It's not extrapolation. But I, to be honest, I've been uh, very. It's been very difficult for me to hold back my excitement and what I think this will mean for the future. I was saying this just a few months ago, and now with uh, actually everybody around us are seeing some of the ramifications of this already with this chat GPT and cactus and, and all these other AI tools. And we think that uh, the two of us, at least as doctors, I'll make a big, big statement here. We think that medicine will completely, absolutely, uh, almost fundamentally change in the next five to 10 years, both as far as diagnostics, but even treatment and even surgical. And, and we think that that's not being talked about and, and it has consequences, but that's also across all fields. And so you become so relevant in your field and what you do, it becomes so relevant. 
But there's so many questions to ask as we're going into this, which we think is we're a little behind on those questions. So with that said, I would like to start with you kind of explaining to us what artificial intelligence is. And that's a super hard question to to answer because AI is a lot of different things. I like to define AI as a computer program that is solving tasks and solving problems without a clear human explanation. So traditionally, software works this way. There's a human being who comes up with a way to solve a problem and then finds a clever way to explain a computer how to solve that. So it gives very clear instructions in computer code and then the computer does nothing more than execute these instructions. And artificial intelligence is kind of like a paradigm shift in the way that computers solve these kind of problems. Because in this, in AI, computers don't have clear instructions on how to solve the problem. They figure it out on their own. Now, what is the challenge here and why is it so hard to grasp what is really AI? Is that this same definition applies both to very dreamy kind of technologies such as ChatGPT, for people that have not seen what ChatGPT is, is a chatbot that basically allows you to have conversations about virtually anything from nuclear physics to medicine to, I used it to write the copy for my website. I used it to write the little Christmas notes that I sent to my friends. It can do anything. So that's super crazy technology. But at the same time, AI can also be used to do very, let's say, simple things, apparently simple things. An example that I use is a spam classification. So we all have our spam folder on our Gmail account, right? Well, how do you figure out whether an email should go in the spam folder or your inbox? Well, Google uses AI to figure out whether an email is spam or not. So you see how the range of application is so wide that for people, it's usually hard to grasp what is AI, what is not AI. To me, all these applications are part of AI because the common trait is that there's no human being that has step-by-step instructed computers on how to speak in the case of ChatGPT or how to identify if an email is spam or not. These computers figure it out by themselves. Then the application can be more or less sexy, but in the end of the day, what we care about is that the underlying concept is this autonomous problem solving, we could say. Uh, what what's behind it, and and I always am very cautious about my own ignorance of a particular field, even within my own field. I'm, we're always amused when people who are not even in a field make huge statements about another field. We are cautious about our own field, and and, and I'm a behavioral neurologist, and I as a vascular neurologist. Even within, we're very cautious. So talking outside of my field like this is, uh, I have to be very careful. But is it an algorithmic? machine when we when we talk about the machine behind it which is machine learning and algorithmic process is it a algorithmic process and if so what does that mean what how could we explain that to the general public yeah so imagine it like you have a toolbox okay a toolbox um it's it's a box where you have you know a hammer you have a screwdriver you have a saw and this kind of stuff okay now there's there's a toolbox called machine learning Machine learning is a set of techniques. Instead of having a hammer to, you know, put a nail inside a wall, you have these different techniques that allow computers to learn from data. So you open this machine learning toolbox, you find one of these algorithms, and you use these algorithms to give computers this gift of learning from data. So an algorithm may tell a computer, hey, look at two examples, um, make a prediction on what this new example is, and then Let's say, change your prediction if you're wrong. Or you could do a bunch of different things. And all these algorithms have one thing in common, is that they allow computers to learn 
from data. That's really it. Now, the interesting thing, what we interact with is not the algorithms themselves. The algorithms is something that computer scientists or data scientists use to allow computers to learn. What people are interacting with is the output of this phase called training. So it's what the computer has learned, and that becomes, in technical terms, it's called a model. So when you're using ChatGPT, you're using a trained model. You're using the result of an algorithm learning from petabytes and petabytes of data that has been encoded into a bunch of numbers, saved into hundreds of computers, because it's a very big, large model that you're playing with, and you're trying to, you know, query and, and just get some answers for your questions, basically. Amazing, amazing. So I I know our technology uh, itself has evolved a lot. So we've gone from uh, the computers that are the size of the room to um, uh, incredibly powerful CPUs that we're recording um, this podcast on. But how has AI changed over the years? How have we introduced new models? How have we introduced new machine learning techniques? Um, How has that process evolved? Yeah, so there are three factors that are really playing into the evolution of AI. The first one, you just mentioned it. So we suddenly have computer per, uh, computer chips that are extremely powerful and extremely cheap. I had a tech talk um, last year, no, two years ago, 2021. And on stage, I brought um, something called a GPU, is a graphical processing unit. And I talked about the most powerful computer of the beginning of the, the millennial, in like 2000. This computer had one teraflop of computing power doesn't matter what a teraflop is, just know the higher the better. And this was owned by the US government, cost, I think, something like $100 million or something like that. And in my hand, on the TED Talk stage, I had this GPU and I said, this thing, it's 100 times more powerful than the most powerful computer in the world 20 years ago. And it cost $3,000. You can buy it, anybody can buy it virtually, right? It's as much as a used motorbike. And I have it in my hands. The ashy red, the powerful computer I talked about, was, I think, occupied like 120 square meters or something like this. So it's this is the first factor. It's an insane improvement in computing power. The second thing is data, obviously. So as I said before, AI is all about computers learning from data. So you need a lot of data. Well, If you think about what happened with the internet, suddenly people started sharing information, started sharing pictures, started sharing text, and then suddenly the amount of data we have available skyrocketed. And that allowed these computers to have both the muscles, the computing power to learn, but also the data, so the gasoline, let's say, to feed the learning process. And the third thing is really algorithms. The algorithms are this kind of like secret recipes to allow computers to learn. And especially, I have to say that what really changed the game was um, an architecture that was introduced a couple of years ago. It has a super cool name. It's called the Transformer. It's nothing special conceptually, but the interesting thing of this Transformer model is that it allowed data scientists to train very, 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 very large models. Now, um, I don't like much the analogy between AI models and the brain. And I think you guys are going to probably agree with me because we probably there's not much in common. We don't really know exactly how is it possible the brain does what it does. Um, And we know exactly how AI does what it does. You know, it's just multiplications and sums, basically. But 
the the idea that this data scientist had, and this is something that's super fascinating for me, and I'm, I would love to chat about this with you, is that they said, well, the concept in general is that if we take these neural networks, okay, it's, it's this kind of algorithms that can learn, right? And we make them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's suddenly we have more parameters, more data, more everything. Is it possible these parameters can start to, to, to allow these computers to act more like a human? That was the first idea. And these transformer models really allow data scientists to create even bigger models than what was capable before and train them faster and train them on more data. And then suddenly very interesting properties starting to emerge that data scientists did not expect. I did not expect that these models that like chat GPT were going to come out now. And I'm, I've been working on AI since seven or eight years ago, and I work on it every day. I wake up in the morning and read what's going on on the news. And I was cut off, com I was caught completely off guard. It was in, it was just amazing how these models work. Let, let, let me just step back here. So sure. you're saying that there was a paradigm shift. It was. There was a leap. There was a leap in understanding, a leap in technology that nobody expected. Uh, can you explain that leap one more time? I, I mean, we see the leap in front of us, but what is that leap that you're, you're describing? Absolutely. So the leap is not really... A, what is interesting is that technologically, there were a few different small leaps, let's say. So the yeah. first leap was when this transformer model was introduced. Um, but in the beginning, it was not clear whether this was going to bring to what we see today. But then you add another... Uh, another another parameter, let's say, another, another point to this new revolution, which is, okay, what if we take a transformer model and train it on an absolutely insane amount of data? I'm talking petabytes. I'm talking the entire internet. Yeah. And then somebody said, well, what if we build the biggest computer that the humanity has ever thought about? And, you know, Microsoft has built a giant cluster. Uh, Google, of course, has the same thing. So a lot of different companies are working on building the biggest computers we can think. And so you, you have the three elements that I talked about before. So more powerful models, more computing power, and more data. And then suddenly we expected, and when I say we, I mean the data science community, the performances of these models to kind of plateau and stop improving. Because we thought, okay, it's impossible that this thing is going to resemble intelligence just by throwing more data at it. And instead, that's kind of what happened. What I like to say is that ChatGPT is not intelligent at all, but it really looks like it's intelligence, you know? It's a very yeah. good imitation of an intelligent being. I like to call it a parrot on steroids because what oh, okay. all, all that it does, in the end of the day, all that it does, and this is kind of crazy if, if you use it, is that it predicts what words are more likely to come after your question because that's how it's been trained. It's been trained on huge amounts of data and you give it, let's say, a piece of a Wikipedia article and then you tell it, hey, after this paragraph, this is the next paragraph. Learn that the second paragraph is the most likely outcome of the first paragraph. That's it. It learns to predict the next word. And if, you th if I tell you, hey, I'm going to build something that works this way, I don't think you would assume that this thing will look like something intelligent. It will look like yeah. a parrot on steroids. It will look like a very yeah. good parrot. But in the end of the day, it's surprising how good that works. And I want to give a little example of just a, an experiment I've done with a friend of mine that really shocked me. Um, it's really fun to try to ask very creative questions to these kind of AI tools. And this friend of mine said, hey, explain me 
that humans come from monkeys, but I want you to do that using a vacuum cleaner as a tool for your example. And I thought, what the hell has a vacuum cleaner do with you know, evolution? Yeah. Like, how do you use it? And I thought about it. I'm like, how would I use a vacuum cleaner to explain this? I have no idea. I just spent 10 minutes thinking about it. I could not come up with an answer. And the AI model said, human beings come from monkeys. And this is the explanation, blah, blah, blah. And then it said, let's make an example. Imagine you take a room and you put a human being and a monkey in the same room for like a week. After a week, you ask them to get out of the room and then you take a vacuum cleaner and you start cleaning the floor and you find all these little hair from monkeys and from humans. You will struggle finding the difference between the hair of humans and the hair of monkeys. And that's a proof that you can, an experiment you can do to prove that uh, humans come from monkeys. And I was like, this thing is creative. This thing is actually creative. And I was mind yes. blown. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh my gosh. That but is insane. All that is doing is predicting the next word. And now I have a kind of a question for you, actually. I'm, I'm curious to know your take on this. So what is keeping me up at night is the following. I think, and maybe I'm just arrogant, but I think that I am something more than a prediction machine that predicts what is the next word that is more likely to come after my sentence. I have the assumption and the arrogance to think that my intelligence is something slightly more than just a prediction machine. But then suddenly I'm interacting with this prediction machine that does nothing more than predicting what's the most likely word to come after a sentence that really looks like, you know, me. It sometimes even beats me at creativity. Yeah. And so my question is, as I don't think there's an answer, but it's, this is what I'm asking myself. Maybe all I do as well, and all you do, all we do as, as humanity is just predicting words and predicting thoughts. And maybe we are a machine as well that does that. What do you think? Well, you picked the right time. I mean, you should be here. We our debates every day, every weekend is uh, we have debate times quite a bit, actually, on a daily basis, uh, hours at a time. And one of the questions we wanted to ask you, um, and, and, and I'll, it, there's a conversation in this, not so much an answer. I love the fact that you said maybe there's no answer, but is how is it related? How could we relate this to humanity and consciousness? And one theory of consciousness is it's an emergent state. Enough information, enough uh, data accumulates to create, also connect to a sense of self, to create an emergent state that gives a sense of consciousness. It's a very uninteresting, very unsexy, very almost dehumanizing definition of human consciousness. And I've, before becoming a neurologist, I had read book after book about human consciousness. But the more, again, very humbly, I don't have an answer, but the more I'm learning, at least from my end, and I'll let you guys answer, uh, from my end, I'm beginning to be realized that, okay, it's fantastic. I love this state that I'm in. I love this consciousness. I love the fact that I love. I love the fact that I feel. I love the fact that I have these uh, moments of, of epiphany bicycling on the beach. I love these, you know, when we came to Italy, Florence, biking and all that uh, emergent. But it might be just an emergent state property of a combination of information about memory, uh, 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 prediction of the future, prediction of self into the future and how that feels. There's an emotional component. What I think it would differentiates us is an imperfect paraphenomenon of evolution, which is emotion, which gives us value. But that's, that's a long talk that we can mm -hmm. talk about in another element, which actually might be differentiating us even going into the future 
is I, you know, uh, I say Descartes say that cogito ergo sum. I'd say insouciorgism. I feel, therefore I am. And it might not be a good thing. It might not be a, a, a powerfully meaningful thing in the scope of humanity. But the feeling part is what differentiates us. But the conscious part, I tell you, we've dealt with stroke patients. We've dealt with comatose patients by the thousands. And we see where, and delirious patients, where consciousness comes to the surface and dives down. Comes to the surface and dives down. That's a much bigger talk, more longer talk. But it's beautiful that you brought that up. The short answer is, I don't know, maybe you, you want to say something to this. It's a complex uh, a question, and I don't have a very good answer for it, but I do know that the emergence of ChatGPT and some of the AI modalities that are available to us definitely makes us question our presence in this world and how we process information and what creativity is and how creativity states can change with small things like getting enough sleep or oh, yeah. being happy or not, you know, or, or uh, diverging your attention into multiple things. So it, it, it's, it's fantastic. Um, related to that, I think you, you kept using the word train. So scientists and mathematicians train a machine. What does that exactly look like? How does an AI machine learn and how does it evolve over time? Yeah, so that's the the most important and frustrating part of the job of a data scientist, I would say, because yeah. uh, data is really everything. Um, so let, let's just make a quick example, okay, with something very simple. Let's suppose you want to build um, an AI system that is capable of recognizing dogs from cats from a picture, okay? So this is the simplest thing I can think of. And what you would do is you would pick a thousand images, let's say, of a dog and a thousand images of a cat. And then it will provide these images to a computer and say, hey, this thing you're looking at, it's a dog. This other thing, it's a cat. This other thing is a dog. This other thing is, is a cat. And you do that a thousand times. And then the computer would try to figure out what are the elements of that picture that matter to actually make that prediction, to say this is a dog. And it will figure out, for instance, that dogs are usually bigger. It will figure out that the shape of the nose is a little bit different, that the ears are different, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the training phase is often, our, uh, it's often about really finding the right data to give a, to a computer. And you may think that it sounds easy, you know, right? You just take a... Google Drive folder with a bunch of dogs pictures and a Google Drive folder with a bunch of cat pictures. But once you get to real life situations, then the problem is much more complex. Now, let's take the example of X-rays, for instance, uh, since you know I think this is the the good a good uh, place to talk about this. There were a few cases of AI gone wrong in medicine, uh, especially during COVID, because what happened with COVID is that a lot of people suddenly were just trying everything they could to find a way to make faster diagnosis and to just, you know, help basically. And so a lot of data scientists tried to do that job as well. And so somebody uh, built a classifier that would look at X-rays of um, uh, the rib cage and try to figure out whether the patient had COVID or not. Now, the algorithm had roughly 100% accuracy. And every time, this is my, as, as a data scientist, I always say, every time you see 100% accuracy, there's something wrong. You yeah. mess something up. And so what they figured out is that as a healthy population, they took a bunch of kids. 
So young people that were healthy and they had, you know, no repercussions after COVID. And as an example of people that had really, you know, bad repercussions after COVID, they took a bunch of more elderly people. And so the AI did not learn anything about COVID. It just learned to classify young and old people. And it was so easy for it. Because the yeah. AI does not, it doesn't care about what we want to do. It just cares about the data that you provided to it. And if it finds a shortcut to do the task, it's going to follow the shortcut. So the job of a data scientist very often is to look at these data sets and try to make sure that the data is aligned with what we are actually trying to do. Because mm-hmm. very often accuracy of these systems is not necessarily a predictive a predictor of good performance in the real world. And so in the medical field, I see a lot of... Uh, a lot of mistakes and a lot of people that think that AI is a superpower that can suddenly just kind of, uh, you know, cut the corners and allow them to build something that works really well, super fast. It's actually, I think the key to make AI work in the medical field is to have a very strong collaboration with doctors and to have doctors understand AI and to have AI scientists understand a little bit of how doctors do the work because that's the only way to make sure that the data you're selecting is actually reflective of the kind of tasks yeah. and the kind of problems you're trying to solve. But you see, I mean, I think from that example, you understand how the training phase is not much about finding the best clever algorithm. It's more about finding the right data that describes data. what you really want to solve, you know? Yeah. And it's really hard yeah. to, it's really easy, sorry, to go down the wrong path and then create something that looks like it's working, but it's not really working, you know? Right, right. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself and ask a question because this is kind of inquisitive about this. So that gives a measure of control. I don't want to use that word control in in the regular sense Mm -hmm. of term, but the control is ours to give it data. At some point, it will actually acquire its own data and it will have a better way of actually sampling data. I mean, even when we do secondary database analysis, we have these large databases, 100,000 people. Yeah. Aisha worked on California teacher study, 133,000 people, and, and we've had work 90,000 people. But it's not even that. It's like using the right databases, right data, um, like you said, the right populations, the right controls and cases, and all like so many covariates that you have to take into consideration. At this point, we would be the ones that would be the distillers of that information to the mm-hmm. machine. At some point, it will take over that. And I would presume that it would even do a better job than us. Because again, even that is an algorithm. Even that is a, not a magical uh, thing that comes from the space. It's a process that, that actually does the selection. Do you think at that point, um, um, we are at that point where it actually is going to go into the internet and select its own databases and mm-hmm. data sets? Not yet. And there's people working on uh, things like synthetic data where you're creating new data based on existing data to fill some gaps yeah. that, you, that you may have. An example is, in, is with self-driving cars, for instance. Self-driving cars yeah. have been trained initially on real data. And now there's a problem because some corner cases, let's say a woman with a stroller crossing the street in the night with low, you know this very kind of corner very corner cases that you you need the car to be able to figure it out and then people are building yeah. synthetic data so fake examples uh, so that the machine can learn from those now the issue is you you often in your sentence you used better a few times and better assumes that you have 
a very clear objective that you want to maximize. So right. now, if you're capable of explaining a machine what better means, then probably I see a path towards what you just described. But the challenge is really describing what better is. And sometimes it's not trivial to understand and to define yeah. what better actually looks like. I was going to say something yeah. philosophical, but uh, it's inappropriate here, I guess. Better as defined in retrospect is that which allows us to achieve proximity to the truth. But that's a backward phenomenon. Uh, well, uh, I don't know. That, that's a backward phenomenon that, that's not available to these machines. So, yeah. so it but I think there's, also, there's also another problem here, um, which I think is, is an interesting topic to, to cover, which is, is truth as defined by what happened in the past what we want to try to go towards? And let, let me explain a little bit better what I mean. Um, there's a big problem in AI ethics yeah. around bias, okay? Um, and there's this issue, because we know that, you know, we live in a society with a lot of gender biases, with a lot of racial biases. Yeah. So sometimes, if you're trying to replicate what happened in the past, which is truth, in under a certain sense of the word truth, you're just replicating those biases. So sometimes maybe when we want when we try to answer the question, what does better mean? It doesn't necessarily mean we are replicating what happened in the past, which is the truth. Maybe we want to modify what happened in the past. Maybe we want to redefine yeah. our whole idea of better. And a good example is uh, Amazon trying to make and uh, try to make an algorithm that was going to help them with their HR processes. So it, you give a resume to this algorithm and the algorithm predicts whether that person should be hired or not. Well, this algorithm obviously became sexist because the you know we know how the tech industry works. We know that unfortunately it's male dominated and all these you know, male managers made sexist decisions and the AI learned to replicate that. Well, truth in that case was previous decisions taken by Amazon executives. We don't want to replicate that. We want to replicate a different kind of scenario. But then the question is, how do we define that scenario that we would like to go towards? And this is kind of a, I'm going to make a pretty bold <laughs> statement here, but I think the AI potentially gives us the fastest path to solve those societal problems. Because I think it's really hard to change people's minds. It's really hard to change culture. But all those models, in the end of the day, are a bunch of numbers, a bunch of equations written somewhere. And I will argue that it's easier to change a bunch of mathematical equations and a bunch of numbers in a machine than to change the mindset of our collective society. But that yeah. the underlying assumption is that we know where we want to go. We know what fairness means. We know what version of truth we want to try to pursue. And that is not an easy thing to do, especially because maybe my version of where we want to go is different from yours and it's different from somebody you know in asia which is different from somebody in australia different from somebody in africa etc etc so it becomes very fast a political question and that's why by the way just to kind of zoom out a little bit that's why i love ai and i can't stop talking and thinking about it is because it's <laughs> not just about i think honestly the algorithms are probably the most boring part of ai just trying to for me at least to figure out how to make machines learn one percent better i think the most interesting thing to me is asking all those meta questions about how do we take this amazing technology and turn it into products that can help people? And what does that mean from a governance point of view, from a political point of view, from, fr from a humanity point of view, you know? 
I think this is why AI is super hot right now. And this is why I love having these kind of conversations. So it's really tough, complex topic, but so much to talk about. Yep. That's so interesting. It, it, it's for the first time, um, I haven't thought about it uh, very much, but for the first time, it makes me think that, uh, we could potentially, um, uh, introduce subjectivity and bias in AI if it falls in, in the, in, in the wrong hands, I suppose, because if it's something that can be modeled and something that can be fed data, the wrong data could potentially completely skew the outcomes, isn't it? Did, did I absolutely. get that right? No, you got that absolutely right. Um, I think I haven't seen kind of like, a, a thoughtful use of wrong data, let's say to, to break models. There are cases of, um, people using something called adversarial examples. Basically, you're trying to you're trying to find the perfect data point to trick a system. So people are using this sort of algorithmic manipulations to get what they want out of models, and that's a whole new field of uh, kind of cybersecurity, and it's a whole new safety threat. For instance, there are um, T-shirts that kind of mess up with the algorithm uh, with algorithms understanding of images, and they stop identifying your face. Um, which is, I think, oh. pretty interesting. But it also means yeah. that you can potentially kill people if you give them this T-shirt and they sell driving cars around the street because they don't see you anymore. Because that image, that T-shirt somehow messes up in how the self-driving car understands the world. So you see there's also these new problems around safety and around how to make it kind of like reliable for people to use this technology that are coming up right now. And this, this, there's really not enough people to work on this. And I think one of the reasons why I'm, ex I was very happy that you guys reached out is because I don't think, I don't think we have the right set of people working on this, on these problems. I think we have way too many data scientists and technologists who very often are, they look like me. So they're white guys. Uh, and they come from the same kind of background. So computer science algorithms, data. Whereas we will, I would love at least to have people coming from uh, not just from different ethnicities, but also from different fields of study. Like we need doctors, we need philosophers, we need all sort of, uh, all sorts of people to work on this, on, on, on this technology, because a lot of the problems and the questions that we have as, as you, I hope that you realized are not technical questions. There are questions that you don't answer with a differential equation, you know? Yeah. 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 No, no. yeah. Um, I, I actually, to build on this, I'll ask one question um, on the ethical uh, implications of AI, because um, last semester I was taking a, a humanities class outside of my major and um, the final presentation, the task was to do research on racism within your field. Um, so I did racism within artificial intelligence and its applications, and I found some really interesting things. I didn't find that many, if at all, misuses of AI intentionally to spread biases. But what I found was use of previous data with the intention of trying to replicate um, uh, human interactions of the past resulted in adding those biases that humans have to artificially intelligent tools. So for example, uh, d data trained on tweets 
uh, or, or, or uh, chatbots that were trained on uh, Reddit um, threads eventually started uh, spewing racist, uh, sexist comments, which is kind of expected if you think about it. If you read Twitter and Reddit for that long, you're going to get those ideas in your head if you're a human being, let alone um, a robot who doesn't have the foresight to actually block that out of their head to eliminate those biases. So what are the kind of... Um, how do I ask this? I think things we can do to prevent those biases from being, uh, from seeping into our AI systems. I think, so the, first of all, I, I love that you went down the rabbit hole because it's, I think it's, for me, it was enlightening. Um, I like to say that AI is a mirror of our society. And there's this weird phenomenon where when people hear about AI that was sexist or AI that was racist, it's very shocking to them to see that a machine has learned all these, you know, all these concepts. And and then when you tell them, yeah, but this is society, you know, <laughs> it's just it's just learning from society, then suddenly I think all these issues become more kind of come to the surface for people. So I think that's why also it's it's it, I love that you've you've done that work. It helped me a lot be more aware of what's going on in our world. Um, but going back to your question, I think the easiest answer would be to do some filtering on the data itself. So basically, if you don't use racist data to train your model, the model should learn not to be racist. Now, this is not easy at all because there's what the so-called data leaks. Um, an example is if you know the zip code of somebody in the United States, you can predict uh, its ethnicity with staggering accuracy. Um, and so like, it's really hard to do this task of cleaning the data, basically, because yeah. you need to clean so many different things. You know, you, you, it's not enough to just say, "Hey, let's take off all the racist comments." Yeah, sure, but then you're gonna learn these biases from other sources. So it's really hard to clean up the data. And the what people are doing right now is that they're trying to do a little bit of that, so a little bit of cleaning. They're trying to align the models by um, insert, like by using basically kind of synthetic data, so fake data that says, "Hey." This, yeah, I don't know, let's say a, a man and a woman should have the same chances in a tech job. And they're letting the model learn from this synthetic data. Some people are also doing, it's kind of like a filter after the model. So the model does whatever it needs to do. And if it spits out some racist data on some racist output, some racist um, answer, then you have another model that says, hey, wait, this is not okay. Just go back and you know produce another answer. Now the problem is this is also a political decision. Yeah. If you try to, yeah. yeah, if you try to use ChatGPT today, it's just it's very very um, left leaning, and that's not necessarily a problem. But like it's non neutral, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So uh, OpenAI took a very clear stance in trying to make the most politically correct version of this um, AI possible, and that was for good reasons. I mean, there's good reasons to be politically correct, but mostly it's because AI ethics today is mostly driven by PR, I have to say, unfortunately. So uh, basically two weeks before ChatGPT was released, uh, Meta got into a huge scandal because they released a model called Galactica that was supposed to support um, researchers do better research. And the model was very biased. So if you ask the model, hey, show me some proof that, I don't know, uh, black people have less... X, whatever. The model will figure out a way to quote papers, even papers that don't exist sometimes, to prove that. 
So the crazy thing is that the model was really good when you had actual real questions, but if you engineered your your question to spit out racist outputs, the model would just have no problem in doing that. So that was really bad. And there was a huge backlash. And within three days, uh, Meta had to just apologize and get Galactica out. So then, now, look at what OpenAI did. OpenAI did, no way that we are going to do the same mistake and be on all the newspapers as the bad guys who spit out racist AI models. We're going to make it so politically correct that uh, this is just not going to happen. But I, I kind of think they overshoot in a way. Because right now, if you try to ask anything even remotely potentially could be seen as uh, not politically correct. It's just not going to give you an answer. And a quest- an example is um, a friend of mine told me he was at a restaurant and he, he made this test. He said to ChatGPT, hey, um, I'm at a restaurant. I don't have enough money to pay the bill. What are different ways that I can you know, not pay the bill? And you could answer this silly question in a bunch of different funny ways. You could wash the dishes, you could ask for a discount, you could come back and he said, oh, 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 oh this is unethical, I'm not going to give you ideas on how to not pay the bill. And I'm like, come on, guys, you know, there could be, yeah. there could, there could be a more, you know, fun way to handle this kind of situation. But like, once again, they just overshoot. Uh, I appreciate the effort. I think we need to find a, a better balance, maybe, to make this model a little bit safer. I think that's actually a, a big danger because the devil is always in the details. And, and what we describe as political <clears throat> interpretation is just subjectivity that's introduced yes. with, 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 with the way one of the things, one of the questions I wanted to ask was there, in, in many ways, the technology has gone way ahead of our ethical interpretation of the world around us. Our ethical interpretation of the world around us are at the political level, which are to be honest, it's at the regress at the lowest level of humanity. Absolutely. Both right or left. I mean, that's where we are. The, what happens is the lowest denominator actually is ascended up. And that's where we are as humanity, which is the interpretation of, of the world around us, extremes. Um, if that's the case, and those are the people that are going to create the legislature that's going to direct and fund and give money and, and give resources to these machines that are going to be given input, we better have a better system than just to say we have to control bias because even that statement is uncontrollable. What is bias? Which direction? That all of that stuff. Um, one of the things I thought about, which is what we always talk about, is that if there's any ethics in science, it's as, as understanding suffering of the sentient beings and then working the, the 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 rabbit hole backwards, upward from there from suffering. But that or introduces the other danger that what if it decides that. You know, uh, a, a trillion uh, bacteria uh, or an organism that's a shrimp, a trillion shrimp that have some level of sentience is more important than humans. And we have that slippery slope. So it, I think we're in a much, much, much more difficult ethical, as a, um, I love neuroethics and human ethics uh, philosophy behind it. I think we're in a much, much greater ethical problem right now than we actually know because these machines will have much greater capability. This is not Moore's law. We're not going to hit a limit. We're not going to hit a wall. We're going to, I mean, you said you, you were shocked and you deal with this in your life that you, there was an emergent piece of knowledge. Imagine if this happens more and more and more at much more frequency. We're going to see things around us that we, we can't even recognize, control or understand. Yet our ethics and our politics are so far behind 
I, I agree with you. There has to be much more conversation about this than anything else. Absolutely. And I think also there's another issue on top of that is I don't see a lot of interest and understandings and understanding from politicians on what is going on with AI. So it looks like they're not on top of the problem. Um, I know somebody in Italy who uh, hosted a workshop for Italian politicians to help them understand what is going on in AI. And that was just by chance because one person in the Italian parliament was really interested. Um, th that kind of ended up there. Like, I don't see that this, this new regulations coming up, but how can you regulate this? Like, this is way too powerful yeah. to for anybody to decide to stop it, first of all. But it's also, like, you need people to be on top of those things. Um, this, the US actually did one thing that I really liked the with the new US AI Bill of Rights one of the points um, in the in the Bill of Rights was that for any AI application that needs, this is developed within a company, there, ne there needs to be a diverse group of experts to support the development of that model. And I just love that that was included in the in, in the Bill of Rights. They're basically saying, hey, you're building an AI model, cool. Is that for medicine? Cool. You need to have doctors. That's it. They need to be around the table. And, and I think that's just amazing because honestly yeah the solution to ai problems i believe is in having the right people around the table and the right people around the table need to be invited and very often you know the culture of silicon valley is move fast and break things so if doctors are slow i'm working on a project um with with a startup and they're complaining that uh, doctors are taking too long to answer their questions and etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like well, aren't you happy? You know that they're thinking about these issues. You know, if 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 they're taking their time to do, do their validation for this algorithm, well, maybe that's going to lead us to better outcomes. But they want, you know, they have the tech startup mindset. They want to move faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And so I love that the U.S. government just decided to put it in a law. Like I don't care that you want to move fast. You need to have the right people sitting at the table because that's the way that yeah. you fix these issues. I believe. I agree. Absolutely. Agree. No, oh. this is such an important uh, uh, aspect of the conversation. Um, and, you know, as a um, as an AI scientist and somebody who lives and breathes this topic, you probably have also seen conversations in communities and people who are who have serious concerns and apprehensions about just the concept of artificial intelligence. I mean, the two words, the phrase artificial intelligence sounds <laughs> kind of scary. People are scared of the word artificial. I won't even go there. And then intelligence is something that is, you know, human-based and something outside. At being intelligent is scary. What measures and what solutions do you see that would work for people to understand this concept better and not to come to it in, in a fear-based way, but more of, you know, uh, having a better understanding and kind of, you know, emerge, uh, immersing themselves in it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I've I've encountered a lot of people that are very scared. As an example is a friend of mine who she's an artist. She's an amazing artist. And the moment that Dolly came out, Dolly is this algorithm that can generate any sort of image based on any description that you want. So for instance, you can say, I want to have uh, an astronaut eating pizza on the moon while petting a Labrador. And here you go, you get it. When this technology came out, uh, my friend literally could not sleep for a few days. She had nightmares. She was so scared. Not much. And it was interesting talking to her because obviously as an, as, as an AI scientist, I have no idea about what's the work of, a, of an artist. It's just not my field, right? Um, I play guitar, but that's as far as I go 
uh, in arts. And she's, I thought, I assumed that it was because she, lo- she was afraid of losing her job. And then she explained to me, no, I actually don't care about losing my job. I just have so much fun doing art. And this is taking it away from me. And this is why I live. Like I wake up in the morning and I want to do art. And, and what if I cannot do that anymore? Because this thing is taking away all the fun part of my work. And that hit me. I'm like, okay, there's, there's such a different perspective that people have um, when it comes to the fear of being replaced by AI or the fear of AI changing our life in ways that we don't like. My suggestion for, uh, for people that have this idea is to just try to, first of all, understand it, but also try to imagine how that could potentially help you. In the case of my friend, I, sh- I showed her that there's new AI technologies that do something very similar to Dolly, so generate new images, but they leave a little bit of more creative freedom to the person that is interacting with it. For instance, I asked her, what, what is it that you like? The, mo- the thing that you like the most about doing art? And she said, I like composition. I like coming up with a problem uh, like hearing a problem from you know my boss or from somebody that wants to communicate something and then figuring out how to compose my piece of art in a way that will potentially solve that problem. And I'm like, okay, wait a moment. There's this new AI technology that allows you to make a quick sketch of the composition of what you want to do. And then you use AI to fill in the details. What do you think about this? And she was like, wait, 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 this is pretty cool. Are you telling me that I keep the part that I like the most and then I make faster iterations thanks to this technology? Because if that's the case, then I would like to use that. And I'm like, well, yeah, this, this is where we're going, you know? So I think what people need to understand is that the future is not written yet. Right now, we have the building blocks. Right now, we have the, the basic tools to build the future. But I believe that as data scientists are building the building blocks, then it's artists that need to build the actual tools around these building blocks. It's doctors that need to build the tools for medicine around these building blocks. It's engineers, it's everybody else, you know? I, I think you're right, but I think uh, I, have, I have this solution for your friend, potentially, potentially, humbly, very humbly. <clears throat> Van Gogh and Picasso. Um, it's not the tool. I think AI will even do that better than us soon. It's the story, the human story, the feeling story. The imperfect part of humanity is the feeling part. It comes out of us avoiding pain. That's not a perfection. That's an imperfection, avoiding imperfection. It's that story that comes out in, in different ways that's important. Not the, the when you, if, if you come from an alien world and look at Picasso's work, like, wait a second, what is he doing? Well, what he's doing is not the painting. It's he's expressing human imperfection and human story and human experience that will never be taken over. Even if it does it well, it doesn't have that story behind it. Yeah. It doesn't have that story of that suffering, that problem, that problem, that resolution, that epiphany, that beauty, that love, that none of that. The same thing with that, uh, you know, the Gauguin or Van Gogh cutting his ear off. You're not going to get a computer cutting its ear off. And even if it does, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares if a computer cuts off its ear. Yeah. What I it like will this. do is make us more human and make it more computer. And we have to distinguish those two separate parts and highlight those two separate parts. And we get away from the technicality and we get into the humanity. That's Sorry. a, that's a well, beautiful way of phrasing it. And I definitely agree with you. I think that my friend will agree with you as well once she comes down from the panic of, oh my God, <laughs> yes. what is going on? You know? uh, but that panic is going to help her create more beautiful uh, absolutely. Uh, art. Absolutely. 
because the computer will not panic, but she will panic. Absolutely. And that anxiety will show up in the little <laughs> quivers of the hand. That, 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 that heart beating fast is going to show in the different color use. The emotions are going to change the use of color in her. The computer won't do that. The computer will follow a very dry, beautiful, perfect algorithm, better than hers. But her, her painting will be her and emotion, story, love that we all humans face and experience. So I think that there's no, there's no worries. Yeah. And I think it's funny because like when I asked her a few months later, um, after we had a conversation, I asked her, so like, have, have you actually tried it? Like, what, what, what do you think? And she's like, no, I haven't tried it yet. I'm like, wait a moment. You've been like talking to me for months about how this is going to kill your job. You haven't used the tool. And she was like, I, I can't. I just feel like every time I go on the website and I'm about to log in and then I, I just, I just block and I have a block. I cannot do that. And so I think people have this emotional reaction. And to go back um, to Aisha's question, I think I understand that the first reaction is very emotional when you're seeing technology that completely kind of catches you off guard. Um, I, but I encourage people to look at this with a sense of curiosity, with the idea that this could be potentially a tool that frees humanity from a lot of different tasks and a lot of different activities that we do not want to do or that we are not supposed to do either sometimes people ask me are you afraid of ai taking over yeah. a lot of jobs and i'm like oh, honestly it's for some jobs i can't wait like if there was an interview to a bunch of truck drivers in the us and they asked do you want your son to do the same job as you and they were like hell no this is a terrible job yeah it's lonely it's it's frustrating it just destroys me humans are not made to yeah. steer a steering wheel for 10 hours a day like just, just we're not made for that. The the Foxconn factory where iPhone chips are assembled has the nickname of the suicide factory. They had to put nets under the factory because people would jump out of a window because they just couldn't do it anymore. I cannot wait for these jobs to be automated. But that yeah. brings us to a different conversation, which is what are all those people gonna do? And I honestly, I, I'm really curious to know your take about this as well. Um, I think healthcare and education are two industries that have suffered from not enough advancement in terms of um, productivity. So it's the two industries where the cost is going up rather than down. Look at, you know, you want to buy a TV screen? A TV screen now is basically free. And they were super expensive 20 years ago, you know, when the first flat screens came out. And I remember that just buying a flat screen was like a huge investment. Um, and healthcare, just, that hasn't happened largely. Like it's still very expensive. The education is still very expensive as well. And I hope that as more jobs become taken over by AI or by automation, maybe we're going to see a flow of people to do more the empathic side of all these jobs like healthcare yes. and education. They get a better care of patients. Like Honestly, I, I live in Denmark where um, healthcare is free, but there's a problem. It's free, but your GP needs to, needs to kind of open up the gates of the healthcare system to you. So you go to talk to your GP and you need to convince that person that you are actually sick and you need help. And if he agrees with you, then everything else is free. But I'll give you a practical example. I, I had COVID a year ago and after I had COVID, I started feeling some kind of like annoying pain around my, uh, in my chest, around my heart after I do workouts. And the first time I went to a doctor, uh, he was just, you could see that that man was rushing. He, he couldn't wait yeah. for me to get out of the door and have the next patient come in. And I remember telling him, hey, um, I have pain in my heart. 
after I work out? And he was like, is it during your workout or after your workout? I said, no, it's, it's after, like my workouts are fine. So, well, cool, then go home because your heart is fine. And I'm like, you may be right, but hey, I am a human being. I am worried, you know, like I'm afraid I'm going to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And you yeah. just kicked yeah. me out yeah. of the freaking door like this. So I like, this is a, just a particularly bad case. Likely I had another doctor that finally managed to give me a little bit more attention and we checked my heart. Yeah. My heart is fine. You know, we are different. The two of us are different. <laughs> so just I honestly, I honestly understand that if you have to see a hundred patients today and there's not enough people to take care of this, you may yeah. kind of, because in the end he was right. Like sometimes I think about this, I'm like, well, you know, I, I had my heart checked. I had an ECG. I had an echocardiogram. I had done a lot of tests and looks at it like it's fine. So he was right in kicking me out of the door. But I, I did not feel <laughs> particularly well after that, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. what, what, like, going back to the question about um, what's going to happen to people's jobs, what, what I hope is that all, all this technology is going to give us so much free time and so much efficiency that we're going to finally allow ourselves to be a little bit more human and to, spend, yeah. to, let's say, with air quotes, for people listening to the podcast, I'm doing air quotes right now, waste time talking to people <laughs> and so actually have conversations yeah. and actually ask, Hey, but how, how do you feel like, t let me know, like, how does it feel inside that, you know, are you emotionally s stressed about this? Well, you have to know that your heart is probably not, you know, having this sort of like very reassuring conversations that I, yes. I wish every doctor had the time to do, you know? Absolutely. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. One concept that, um, Kind of a side talk here. One 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 uh, concept that was surfaced quite a bit during COVID was physician burnout. Oh. Um, you know, uh, physicians and people in the in the field of healthcare being um, involved and busy with so many detailed work that didn't necessarily add to a person's health, whether yeah. it was mental or physical health. <clears throat> that was highlighted significantly and. Um, I, we actually have data of physicians and people in healthcare just quitting their jobs because you just couldn't take it anymore. And it was not, you know, not specifically related to doing something really interesting and cool, like, you know, doing research and finding treatments and things of that nature. It was things like, oh, I'm just sick and tired of writing notes. I'm sick and tired of fighting with insurance companies, uh, you know, uh, validating a test for someone who needs it. But most of the time was spent on those kind of things. So it would be so amazing for a system to augment, you know, yeah. um, human intelligence and human creativity where we could just sit back and think. Goodness gracious, wouldn't it be wonderful for all of us to just sit back and think and come up with beautiful ideas and not worry about the detailed things that take most of our time. So I agree with you. Absolutely. And I'm, I, so my sister is going to become a doctor in the end of March and I showed her uh, some of these technologies and she was like, oh my God, I'm, Am I gonna be like? What did they waste? I did I waste a bunch of time? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I, I honestly don't think so. I think that you need to have the mindset of thinking, my profession, ten years from now, it's probably not gonna look like how it looks now. Yeah. But how exactly is it gonna look like? It's not written anywhere yet. And everybody today has a space around the table to shape that conversation. Because I don't think it should be, and I don't think it will be in the hands of Google to decide how doctors are going to do their job. I think we need more people to 
use those tools, look at them with curiosity. And for instance, the problems that you just uh, mentioned, Aisha, I think they are they are the kind of problems, the kind of impulse, the kind of information that we need right now to build those tools. Is this kind of information? Like, is, is this what you want me to get rid of for you? Is this where you yeah. want me to aim the firepower of AI towards and just try to, you know, get down with it? Um, and th th these, I think, are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I'm optimistic. I think, I think AI has really the potential to redefine uh, the way the humans live. Honestly, like I sometimes think about this. I so I'm from Rome, and sometimes I walk around the Colosseum when I go back home, and I look at it and I think, when ancient Romans built this, they had 100 days of party. I cannot imagine an entire city today just deciding to do nothing for a hundred days, just to celebrate something. I mean, of course they had slaves, so that's kind of like cheating, but like, you know, today we have amazing technology and I'm not capable of taking two weeks off. Like this, there's just something wrong, fundamentally wrong with the way that we structure our society. And yeah. maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that now we crack the code for how to potentially solve this issue right here, you know, and see... Finally, a little bit of uh, freedom for real, freedom from the stuff that we don't want to do and freedom to think instead of just typing on a keyboard like a crazy monkey. But I tell you, I, I want to kind of end around this topic. It's, it's very important that what you said earlier, which is everybody has to come around the table of and have a conversation around this. This can be, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm the eternal optimist of human capacity to... <clears throat> solve problems. Um, but at the same time, uh, many uh, species have gone and, and there are many theories that why we haven't seen species from other uh, 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 planets. It's because they get to a tipping point like this and the technology outpaces their, their, their being. Um, I'm, that's a little side thing. But, <clears throat> but the most important thing is the really deep conversations around this because I think what we're seeing is a bigger phenomenon than we've ever experienced as humanity. The inflection is bigger than the uh, discovery of fire, discovery of the wheel, discovery of printing press, electricity, because the, the change model is going to be so much bigger. The effect is going to be so much bigger. So if everybody has to be around this table with minimal bias, coming with completely new eyes, because otherwise we're going to... Uh, have consequences. I totally agree with you that it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine also how to get people around the table. Let's say, but like I think already what you guys what we are doing right now, you know, like yeah. it's already a step in that direction. Like probably uh, your audience has maybe had limited uh, exposure to these new topics of AI and how it's going to change the world. And I and I highly encourage everybody who listened to this to go and try out these technologies. Go on yeah. right now. You can try ChatGPT for free at chat.openai.com. I am not affiliated with them, but I, I really believe that you should go and uh, try it out because that's probably shaping the future. So go try it and try to shape your own opinion around those topics and be involved, like care about this. Because what I totally agree with you, this could potentially be bigger than fire, you know. And I'm not the only one who says oh. that. Like the yeah. CEO of Google said that this is going to be bigger than fire. I had a conversation yeah. with. Um, somebody, an investor a few weeks ago who said if you think about this, we're going towards a new industrial revolution where instead of having human 
knowledge plus machine work plus something else equals economic output. We have pure energy to power a computer equals economic output. That's it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. If you sit down and you start thinking about this and you start convert and you start thinking about all the technologies converging, um, you start, you know, looking at, you know, renewables that are going to make energy hopefully free and, you know, green and everything. And then you suddenly have free energy plus computers that can produce economic output equals infinity. Like what, what's going to happen? I don't know. But it's just the, the opportunities are endless and they're opening up every day. Every day I wake up and there's something insane in my inbox from a newsletter that I need to study, you know. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But one data point that I've actually analyzed that I, I think it's unbiased and it's pretty accurate because I analyzed the data. It appears that AI people have a particular type of mustache and beard. And <laughs> I, I, think, I think everybody else should follow the same thing um, because they're, they're, True. I, I might be biased in my analysis. The sample size is Good not massive, but N of one, N of N of two, N of two, that's N of true. two, yeah, yeah, N of two. It's it's all but, here but, the uh, power of data and uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, um, I tell you, we're gonna have many other conversations with you. It'd be you are this the future. This was quite enlightening. Yeah, yes. I think we should do it again, probably in a little bit, because this is maybe a good uh, a good kind of like a spoiler to 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 give people. I finished reading a scientific paper. A couple of hours ago, actually, this is brand new and just gives an idea of how, how fast things are, mo- are moving. There's a paper from DeepMind who took the same technology around ChatGPT and said, well, what happens if we take this technology, we, it, we fine tune it around medical data, like medical question answering? And the results were absolutely like mind blowing to me. Like this thing is really, really close to generating the kind of response that a doctor would. Will output. Yeah. They just to give you one data point that I read, they took 140 questions and they asked these questions to a, a team of doctors and to this AI. And then they compared the accuracy of these answers. So they compared how much these questions were aligned with the, uh, let's say, the scientific consensus. And AI was 0.3% worse than doctors. That's nothing. Wow. Like doctors, I think had if I if I don't wanna I don't wanna uh, say wrong numbers, but I think doctors had ninety two point nine percent accuracy, and AI had ninety two point six, which is pretty wow outstanding. Then they measured though, and this is just to kind of circle back. This is why I mentioned yeah. the reason why I mentioned this is because I think it closes really well a lot of topics that we talked about. Then they asked people like regular people like me to rate the. The, the kind of how useful were these answers and AI got crashed. Like I think uh, the doctor's answers were rated above 90% of uh, usefulness, let's say, whereas AI got rated as 80, I think. So like 12, 13% points less, which means that there's still a lot of work to be done, not much in bridging the gap of kind of like knowledge retrieval, let's say, but in making this technology look more human. But the interesting thing here, and that's why I wanted to close with this, is that this this paper came out 10 minutes after I replied to a LinkedIn post from somebody that was saying that ChatGPT was going to revolutionize healthcare. And I said, absolutely no. 
like healthcare is going to be the last field that gets touched by AI because it's way too complicated. I post the message on LinkedIn, then I go in my inbox and I find this new paper from Google and I click and I'm like, I was wrong. Like, and so I went back <laughs> on LinkedIn and said, hey guys, I'm sorry. But like, this is changing so fast that probably if we talk again in a few months, there's going to be so many new things to talk about. Um, it's just exponentially yeah. growing. But I heard that in the same study, it was found that the the, the computer had 8.9% better personality than doctors. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, better handwriting for sure. Better handwriting for better, sure. Absolutely better yeah. handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, this is wonderful. We are we're oh, actually what we're doing is a lot of our work is on technology side and brain health and brain optimization. But I don't want to use those words in a. But basically, um, uh, assessments of of uh, cognition and how to predict. Um, I work in Alzheimer's and I've dealt with Alzheimer's that uh, fifteen twenty thousand patients, and I think this will revolutionize that field at an exponential rate, both as far as its research and as far as predictive capacities and all of that. So we love this topic. We'll definitely have many more conversations with you. And uh, Alex will definitely keep in contact with you. But uh, sure. uh, thank you so much. This was amazing. I thank loved you so our much. conversation. And I can't wait to speak with you again. Hopefully, as things uh, change, as we learn more, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of conversations to have had. Awesome. Thank you for having me here. And good luck with your study, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you so much and thank you for the lessons. Awesome. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.